This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. Hello and welcome to the spoiler edition of the Game of Thrones podcast brought to you by Bald Move. You can find all of our stuff on baldmove.com. This is for episode 507 entitled The Gift of HBO's Game of Thrones television series. I'm your host Aaron and we're talking spoilers this week. Don't have a lot of preamble. There was a Vanity Fair article that was quoting one of the uh, fan sites that had some casting news that's leaked out of the casting calls for Game of Thrones Season 6. That's kind of interesting, but I'm going to save those for later on in the season, maybe for the season wrap-up or at least uh, episode 510. I want to kind of see what your guys' thoughts are uh, because I'll I'll post the actual article in the show notes if you want to get the information. Uh, But the, the big news is it looks like I am wrong about the Greyjoy's importance to the series because one of the casting things looks like it is for Euron Greyjoy. So that's kind of tantalizing. But again, don't want to talk about that too much this week. Want to sort of get straight into the listeners' emails. So let's start with Nathan P., He sends me an image that I kind of got to describe. I'll put this image in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it is a close-up view of uh, the camera panning over rows and rows of faces in the Faceless Men's headquarters. And two of the faces right next to each other have some inserts to uh, uh, something showing Catelyn Stark and also something showing Liza Aaron. And they say that these faces that are on the wall are supposedly Catelyn and Lysa. And he wonders if Catelyn Stoneheart theory has been officially debunked or are people just grasping at straws? I don't know. First off, to my eyes, these aren't really great matches for the Tully girls. The one that's supposed to be Cat looks like she's quite a bit older. And the one supposed to be Lysa kind of looks like a dude, but you know, to have, <laughs> that that could be said of, of Lysa herself. So they're not super conclusive. They could be. I mean, even if they were, they could be just an Easter egg put in by production staff to fuck with us, or it could be that they had life casts of Catelyn and Lysa for some kind of makeup or special effects reason, and just reused them. Either way, it's hard for me to see how the faceless men having Lysa and Cat's face would say one thing or another about Lady Stoneheart. I guess if they had their faces, then clearly, you know, you're going to have a faceless Stoneheart if you if if you do have a Stoneheart, which would kind of be horrifying and cool. But yeah, I mean, it. it I think it's going to be in the realm of interesting Easter egg, and that's it. Even if this is proved to be true, I don't think it says one way or another about uh, Lady Stoneheart. Moving on to Mike C. So Mike Stee thinks that there is a hint to John's fate in the next episode, buried as an Easter egg into the preview of episode 508. I swear, Eamon talking about egg so much this week has just got the Easter egg people uh, on a hunt. And Mike's found something, he thinks. First, I'm going to play you John's death scene from Dance with Dragons. He punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. John fell to his knees. He found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Ghost, he whispered. Pain washed over him. Stick them with a pointy end. When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades, he gave a grunt 
and fell face first into the snow. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. Now here are the final few seconds of the preview for episode 508, beginning with a wildling saying he isn't going to break bread with a crow. My ancestors would spit on me if I broke bread with a crow. All right, so if you can hold both of those in your head, I'll let Mike explain. He says, I can only describe this as the audible interpretation of Jon Snow's attack. We hear a mix of five sound effects and soundtrack beats in an interesting sequence as follows. A beat that sounds like a hammer striking steel, the sound of a sword being drawn, another of the same hammer strike beat, then a more muffled beat, followed by a sound of a cold rushing wind while the Game of Thrones title is shown, then fading to black. I submit that each of the first four noises represent a knife being plunged into Jon Snow. The fourth one is muffled because according to Jon's POV, he never felt it. Then following the fourth stab, cold, or the sound of a cold wind blowing. Well, you've heard the evidence, so I'm going to let you guys decide for yourself. To me, I'm not convinced because this muffled beat is standard end of preview ominous sound, kind of like the poem. As is the Howling Winds. Uh, I know I've heard that in previews before when they're talking about kind of shocking things happening beyond the wall. As is the Hammer Strike. That's in a lot of the Game of Thrones previews. But, on the other hand, I'm pretty sure Jon Snow is going to quote-unquote die this season. So maybe it is a bit of foreshadowing. As I said, I'm playing it and you can decide. Nick R., the High Sparrow has caught my eye in this season of the show as the biggest new game-changer in the field of play. Jonathan Price has done a masterful job bringing the character to life and has more than held his own sharing the screen with heavyweight forces such as Cersei and uh, uh, Lady Tyrell, or the Queen of Thorns, Olena Tyrell. But, and perhaps partially because of the way he has perfectly played every situation thus far, something is amiss. There is no way that a total unknown can step on the field and effectively change the game at King's Landing virtually overnight. So maybe Lady Olena is right, and he does have a motivation, but instead of greed, it's something more sinister, revenge. Now, I know you've covered the High Sparrow equals Jojen's dad theory, but there's another possibility. The High Sparrow is in fact a former High Lord who has a Targaryen loyalist, or who is a Targaryen loyalist. Surviving the rebellion, he is disgraced and loses everything, including his lands and his title, perhaps even prominently losing a son during the rebellion. At this point, he has a few options. Take the black, become a sellsword across the narrow sea, or find religion. Maybe he genuinely shed his old life and became a simple septon. Fast forward 15 years, and the new ruling class has become crippled by greed and bloated with excess and vice. He leads a holy crusade to feed these high lords, the same humble pie he was subjected to. Humble Pie with the secret ingredient of revenge. Cut to season five, the High Sparrow reveals himself in a Bond villainy speech, which is certainly ironic. Varys appears and they high-five. Together they have created a power vacuum necessary for a Targaryen to take the throne. I don't know if there's a High Lord or House who has been teased who would fit this bill. Thoughts? Well, that's kind of the problem. Uh, positing that someone that is a High Lord and a Targaryen loyalist that would, as you say, fit the bill. I mean, you know, Martin's introduced John Connington pretty late in the game, so I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just that there isn't any evidence to support the theory as yet. If anyone is listening and can name some names, maybe this could go somewhere. But until then, uh, it's kind of interesting speculation. I mean, the thing about Robert is he pardoned most of the guys that he went to war against and turned them into allies. So... That kind of explains the lack of Targaryen loyalist in the realm, um, and also like the lack of tar a, a huge core of Targaryen loyalist at the Wall, because uh, just Robert straight up forgave a lot of them, which a lot of people saw as a mistake, and a lot of people saw as really smart statecraft. So, who's to say? The man got killed by a pig. Moving on to Patrick. What if Doran uses Jaime to help him put Marcella on the Iron Throne? That way would set in motion Cersei's Valonqar prophecy, as he'll also refuse to come back to King's, Handing, King's Landing to help her with the High Sparrow situation. So yeah, I've been kicking around an idea of Jaime defecting and becoming Marcella's Lord Commander of the Queen's Garden Dorne. I like that because it's a big fuck you to Cersei. It kind of mirrors his disillusionment with his family and his sister in particular in the book. The problem I have is that it's also a huge fuck you to Tommen, 
And honestly, the show just hasn't done the groundwork necessary to sell a betrayal of this magnitude yet. Uh, show Jamie still loves his sister, is blissfully unaware of any unfaithfulness on her part. He hates his brother Tyrion. He loves his father Tywin. On the other hand, if this stuff with Lancel plays out the way we think it will, with his confessions, maybe he'll find out about her unfaithfulness inside with Dorne and Marcella. I mean, can I see a scene where... Doran gives him a raven message that says she's on trial for unfaithfulness and Lancel's confessed all and it's all the the King's Landing Inquirer son can talk about and will that equal shit tons of internal monologues of him talking about Lancel and or thinking about Lancel's and the Kettlebacks and even Moonboy for all I know I don't know I don't know the hundredth time I read Lancel, the Kettle Blacks, and Moon Boy, for all I know, I was kind of sick of it, but it did a very great point of showing us how consumed Jamie was by the idea of his sister, which is his one true love, lightly abandoning him, that by the time he got to the end of the book and he throws Cersei's plea for help into the fire, it made good character sense. I wonder how they're going to sell that turn for Jamie, or if he's going to have a completely different arc. I don't know. John R. says, hey, Aaron, it's John from House Conspiring. While recording the podcast Now Conspiring and talking about the episode, I came up with a mildly interesting theory about where the show is really going with Dorne. I've been also very dissatisfied with Dorne due to how strangely it's deviated from the books, even though I like the idea on paper of Jamie and Braun teaming up. After watching this week's episode, however, I think I figured out just where the hell or what the hell is being set up. When we see Tyene flirting with Bronn and sort of playing with his life in the jail cells, I'm reminded of the seduction between Aryan Martell and Eris Oakhart. So this leads me to believe they're actually transplanting Bronn and Tyene as this odd couple. I think Ilaria may still try to carry her plan out somehow by escaping Sunspear with Marcella, though perhaps not to crown her. And I also think Tyene will essentially seduce Bronn and convince him to help them, similar to how Sir Eris was bamboozled. This, of course, means Ario could be the one who killed Braun in battle, or they may mix it up and have Braun and Jamie face off against each other. After all, Jamie would almost certainly side with keeping Marcella away from the Sand Snakes in this version of the story. It would also be satisfying to see the reluctant alliance between Jamie and Braun disrupted by the fact that Braun is only looking out for himself. They've certainly set this up. This may seem like a stretch to some, but I think it's far more faithful to what plays out in the books than anything else they could try to do at this point. Plus, you don't even have to kill off Bronn like they did with Eris. He could just as easily pull a Dark Star and ride off to escape justice. Okay, so all the same problems with this theory uh, of Jamie somehow siding with some faction with Marcella applies to what I said to the previous theory. And I'd also like to add that there is no way in Seven Hells that I'm buying that Jamie can defeat Bronn in single combat. Now, maybe they have Jamie and Ario, or Ario rather, against Bronn. Sure, that would be entertaining. Also, I kind of think it's grown worthy to think that Bronn would throw aside a fortune and position and lands from the Lannisters for any woman, no matter how personally beautiful he found her. That seems like a Bush League pussy whip kind of move, and that's not the Bronn that we know and love, right? In the main cast, the viewers speculated that this antidote is something you have to keep taking for it to retain its effectiveness. And fine, I'd absolutely buy Bronn betraying Jaime to save his skin, because that is the thing that Bronn... Uh, prom- uh, uh, values most highly his own life. But that's about it. I don't think the Sand Snakes or even Prince Doran can outbid the Lannisters, even with their minds running dry. Maybe that'll be a plot point, that he can just be outbid. Um, But, you know, he's not going to be outbid by the Sand Snakes. He might be outbid by Doran. And I just don't see how to make the particulars of this stuff work. Also... I'm not super invested in how accurately this thing can follow the plot in the books because I think the plot in the books is kind of a mess too. And at best, it seems like a A slash B plot that's eventually going to be supplanted by Doran's plan C, which I hope is better than the kid, you know, crowning Marcella or sending uh, Quentin off to get burnt by Dragonfire and court Danny. I don't know. I, again... You know, Dorne's not that great in the books. Dorne has a lot of promise in the books, but somehow they've made it even worse in the show so far. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not holding my breath to see it get any better uh, in the short term. Tyler M says, I'm probably not the first one to say this, but what if the whole scene with Braun and the Sand Snakes is the double D's take on Eris Okart, Arion Martell, Dark Star story arc? Maybe Braun will fall for the flashing Sand Snake and is persuaded to make an attempt on the life of Marcella, combining Eris and Dark Star from the books. Braun could ultimately meet his demise at the hands of Jamie on a surprise stab from behind or something, but not until after he strikes a blow to Marcella, possibly even a fatal blow, causing Dorne to have no choice but enter the war early and send Tristane to Marine to court Danny. Maybe not, but I think the Braun theory could be a high potential plot. God damn, is there something in the water this week? What's going on here? Uh, I like specific parts of this theory. I like that Marcella might get murdered. Well, that sounds strange. Uh... I don't think the pink monstrosity, the the Princess Peach outfit, warrants that warrants death. It's not a death sentence, but I'm saying it might be interesting for her to die, which did would allow Tristane to fill in for Quentin's shoes and sail east to court Danny. Though, uh, but the problems are kind of formidable. Why would Bron betray Jamie if it's for love? I think I'm going to literally puke on air, which might be a first for podcasting. So that's cool. I like Dorn entering entering the war. Uh, but I think it's going to look weird to send Tristane over to Essos to court Danny when we know she's already engaged and will likely be married before he gets there. I get that's roughly what happens in the book, but I thought it was kind of dumb then. And Doran had put the plan into motion long before her marriage alliance to Hisdar. I mean, I always thought that Quentin gets over there and's like, hey, ants, marry me. And she's all like, I'm already engaged to this guy. Wah, wah. Uh... Also, I don't know what Doran's plan B or plan C is going to be in the books. He hasn't even articulated a damn plan in the show, and we're going on eight episodes into this thing. If this had happened four episodes ago, before Danny proposed marriage to Hisdar, then there would be some real suspense. I mean, he's in route. Danny produce, or proposes marriage to Hisdar. Oh no, what you gonna do? That's a problem with the plot in the books. I no level did I ever take Quentin seriously after Danny took his Dara as a husband. If she's going to follow her heart, I think she would have chosen Dario. Moving on to Alex M. What are your thoughts on a random late in the season character installation? Quentin. Doran Martell introduces Quentin Martell to Jamie and Braun to bring his sons across the narrow sea to Marine and Daenerys, taking the place of Archibald Ronwood, Ironwood, and Garrus Drinkwater. I hope I'm pronouncing those correct because I don't think I've ever heard or I don't remember how Roy pronounced them in the the read-along books. Anyway, I thought of this once when Jamie and Braun were captured. However, I couldn't bring myself to act on the thoughts just like Doran has all season long. Ooh, low blow on Doran. The man's confined to a wheelchair, for God's sakes. Uh, I I like this theory the best. I still feel like sending Quentin or Tristane or whom over to Danny at this point is going to be kind of ridiculous, but I don't know. Maybe the Winds of Winter comes out and Doran's plan B is amazing and Quentin is a crucial piece of that puzzle and I'll owe George an apology and by extension the double D's. But I feel like at this point in the season, the double D's have really not capitalized on the potential to streamlined plot and streamlined characters i mean a lot of this stuff is feeling more like change for change sake and not like change for character economy or plot economy and you know i'm on board for the latter the first to change for change sake kind of strikes me as what's going on a lot at the walking dead and it's almost never as good as the original material and i'm I don't know. I'm probably going to look like a jackass because we still have three episodes left and this could all, you know, be wrapped up tidy. And, you know, Dorn is going to be good and Winterfell is going to be good and all that. But right now I'm a little restless and I'm kind of amazed that they're doing this when the first four seasons were largely successful because they were faithful adaptations of the, the book series. I don't know. Let's continue with Christopher R. When Cersei sent Lord Tyrell to negotiate with the Iron Bank, she sent Marin Trent to accompany him. With only a few episodes left, do you think we'll see a conclusion to that plotline? I'm intrigued by the idea that Arya will be in the same city as one of the names on her lists, and maybe running to Marin Trent would be reason enough for her to forget about the Faceless Men and go dig up Needle from under a rock on the beach. Yeah, I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's been a while since we've revisited this, and I know uh, this podcast being... 
every season of Game of Thrones, the audience we start off with in episode one, by the time we're in episode 10, we're l- roughly 50% higher, which is, again, you know, the difference between episode one and these episode 10 from last season is roughly 50% too. So at any given time, I'm dealing with half of an audience that has not heard anything but like the last two or three podcasts, um, which is interesting. But so I, that's why I kind of revisit some of these topics from time to time. But I think it's pretty obvious that Arya is going to be giving out the gift to Sir Marin before the season is over. I think it's kind of going to go down like the books where she's assigned a legitimate target or a legitimate activity to do some spying or some, some skulk work for the faceless men which she will successfully accomplish, but she'll see Marin Trant walking around and she won't be able to deny her Arya Stark lone wolf side justice, and then Jacken's going to blind her. I would have figured that this would have happened a few episodes ago, and I'm really kind of shocked at how... You know, it feels like this show has been kind of dragging its feet in the mid-season. The last three episodes or so, there was such a head of steam built up and so much stuff being economized and downsized and kind of repackaged that it's like, well, well, maybe they will be able to set up a fairly breathless ride and get into the the new books in the last two or three episodes. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels like structurally they still kind of want to end this season right at the end of dance. And I don't know, maybe they're more afraid of overtaking George than I would have given them credit for. Maybe George saying, hey, I'm going to get the new books out before the next season has kind of given them motivation. Or maybe the other thing is it just would feel weird to deal with the climax of one book in like episode seven and then end with the final three episodes being kind of, you know, the slow buildup of the next season. So maybe just from a narrative point, they're like, ah, oh, there was no good answers, and this is what we end up getting stuck with. But I don't know. It's it's hard to put your finger right on. Uh, and I'm not saying this is a bad show, because still, it's a great television show that is right up there with the best of television. But I have to be honest, I am a little restless as a Game of Thrones fan watching this season. Kevin R. says, I believe it's a foregone conclusion that For the Watch will happen in Episode 9. I'm interested to hear what you think the aftermath of John's betrayal will be. One theory suggests that John will be rescued by Ghost and or Melisandre if she returns to the Wall before the mutineers kill him, and the finale will be revealed that John is in a coma state like Bran before him. However, an alternate theory I've seen floating around is that the mutineers do in fact kill John, and in the finale they burn his body on a funeral pyre, but John does not burn and rise from the ashes. This would reveal that John is a Targaryen and the show a link between himself and Danny. And then you can end the season there. So I personally dislike the idea of John just rising from the flames without the use of warging or Lord of Light magic, because that's not what Danny did. Danny went into the flames alive and she emerged unscathed. Also, we've seen John get the shit burnt out of him by a lantern in, I believe, season one, when he fended off the White Walker attack from the, the Lord Commander, the old bear. So why introduce the mechanics of resurrection and or warging if you're not going to use them? And why show that John is not fireproof and then later you're going to show him to be fireproof? On the other hand, him arising from the flames would be one way to raise and at least in show watchers' minds a direct connection to him and Targaryens, which thus far the show has been really slow to develop. I mean, hell, the little Littlefinger speech in the crypt uh, about Lyanna and Rhaegar and Barristan's talk of Rhaegar is really the first real steps they've they've taken to build that. I mean, there's a little bit of hints in season one and season two, but I, certainly the show's been much slower on building that than than the Game of Thrones uh, or the Song of Ice and Fire series is. So my thought is, I'd be disappointed if they went with either a coma or a fireborn resurrection. I think. The coma would just come off like some kind of dumb cliffhanger because people are like, they're not going to kill Jon Snow. Kind of like the way we do with, with, with Dance of Dragons, right? Uh, and that's a fair point to make about his fate in the books. So I don't know if that's that's weak, but it feels somehow weaker to me to, to, to do that on television. And I think the fire thing would feel pretty random and not very Game of Thrones. That's my opinion. I'd love to hear your guys's. Moving on to Andrew R. 
You mentioned, or perhaps it was a listener email, that many book readers are irritated with the nihilism in the story, and therefore parts, or perhaps they would not mind if John was not murdered or almost murdered or whatever on the show. Count me among those. When I read the parts, I literally put the book down and said aloud, screw you, George R.R. Martin. It's a credit to the story that I care about so many of the characters, but are all the ones I like going to be killed? Perhaps this suggests I'm ultimately naive or that I buy into simplistic and unrealistic good triumphs over evil crap, but I'd like some good to prevail. The bottom line is I need some comeuppance, and if I don't get some in the next two books, I mean I need at least to see the Boltons and the Freys get theirs, I'm going to be left with a very bitter taste in my mouth. Well, from what I can tell of George Andrew, he seems like a really nice guy, and I doubt he'd tell the song of Ice and Fire in a way that would just be pointless cruelty and misery. If it does end in a bitter fashion, then I would at least hope and expect it would be to make a larger point that would resonate with the reader. And that point can't just be war is bad, okay? I would not be surprised if all the characters we care about do die, but doing so in a way that will bring about a hope for the future, perhaps by permanently ending the threat of the others. Or perhaps we'll find out, as we've talked about in a tinfoil segment from last season, that it's men who have broken some kind of ancient pact, and the others are out for revenge against us, and we'll broker some kind of renewed peace with them. It's not like George to make a one-dimensional pure race of evil beings, after all, right? The White Walkers have to have some kind of motivation, and that's going to be the key to the climax of the story, I believe, that, that unraveling what they want and, and why they are this belligerent force is going to give us a clarity about the, the, fina- the finale of the series we just can't see right now. That's my thoughts anyway. Moving on to REG. I'm more certain than ever that Sans is being set up to replace Lady Stoneheart. Just look at her this episode. She's got the whole hood thing going, the hardened stare. She's swiping corkscrews and shit. Instead of an undead Catelyn Stark, we get a live Sansa Stark. A positive change from the books, as I was never too into Lady Stoneheart character. Sansa will send Brienne after the Kingslayer. I think that Jaime and Brienne will meet next season at the Siege of Whit Riverrun, the ancestral seat of House Tully, where Catelyn grew up. I recently rewatched the scene from last season where Jamie sends Brienne on her mission to find Sansa, and I just got a feeling that everything will come back around. Well, they did make a big deal out of the Blackfish surviving the Red Wedding, and he, as of yet, is unaccounted for. Maybe they just have him swim downstream ri- to River Run and fly to Stark Banner just for Jamie to go ride forth and resolve next season. That kind of sounds ridiculous, though. Bringing the Riverlands to the King's Peace was an interesting thing to have Jamie do in the books, but I feel like it would feel like the plot is moving backwards at this point in the show because they invented something for Jamie to go do in Dorne to replace his storyline about pacifying the Riverlands and then go bring it back around and level in chapter, not chapter, in season six to have him pacify the Riverlands. I don't know. I mean, I. It's getting increasingly hard for me to separate the experience as a show watcher and a book reader because maybe a show watcher would be like, I don't give a shit because I don't know. I didn't know the existence of either of these plot lines. So I don't know that they were supposed to happen at the same time and it feels like treading water, but I can't help but to my ear having it feel like you're treading plot water. And I feel like we're doing a lot of treading plot water in, in this season and I'm not looking forward to more of the same next season. I would like to get into some new stuff. I do think that Jamie and Brienne aren't done. I mean, that's not a controversial statement. And I'm on board with Sansa Stoneheart. I'm on board with her being alive. I think that she can quite conceivably and plausibly order Brienne to kill Jamie as a test of loyalty, which, by the way, is not a good sign for the Jamie plus Braun plus Tristan going to Essos theory. I mean, Jamie can't cross the narrow sea with them and still be relevant and be able to reconnect with Brienne in dramatic fashion. I mean, eventually some of these kind of tinfoily show theories are mutually exclusive and I'm way more invested in Jamie and Brienne meeting some kind of satisfying end to their character arcs than I am Jamie and Braun going over to Essos with another character that I don't care to probably ultimately have a doomed relationship with Danny. Matt from Knoxville says, so here's what I'm thinking the show may do with the Winterfell wall hard home plot line. In order to fulfill her Lord of Light prophecy nonsense, Melisandre defies Stannis and with the help of Selyse tries to burn Shireen. 
Sanus is wroth with her, but the combination of impending battle and Melisandre's magical booty force Stannis to send her to the wall to be dealt with later when normally Stannis would have shortened her by a head. So Melisandre arrives at the wall just as Jon is returning from Hardhome. Hopefully Jon is returning after a kick-ass battle with White Walkers. The Watch murders Jon. Etu, Ali, etu, you fuck. Then Melisandre is there to give him the kiss of life, but then she dies in the scene similarly to how Beric Dondarrion passes his last fire to Lady Stoneheart in a book. I don't think the ghost will be involved. But the show has to have Drogon landing on the fighting pits to carry away Danny, right? I think we'll get cheated out of the Battle of Winterfell, though, which is a shame. Yeah, I don't think they can get away with disappointing us by not having the climax be Drogon and Danny. And also, if if not, if if this process doesn't involve ghosts somehow, why throw in the gratuitous scene of ghost saving Sam and Gilly, which doesn't happen in the books? I feel like that is a reminder that, hey, ghost is still a real thing, and he's got a connection there with John. But... You know, about the Drogon and Danny thing, I don't think they can kick that to next season because think about it, just from a narrative standpoint, that moment would be so weird to just open the season with. It makes a lot more sense to open next season with Danny in old Valeria or she's in a Dothraki sea just chilling with Drogon and they're trying to figure each other out. As far as Winterfell, I feel like they'll punt that to next season or just allude to it like they do in the books and what actually happens will be revealed next year because... It does seem like they're very unwilling to tread much beyond what happens in dance this year. I don't know if it's out of respect for George or, again, because it just doesn't fit a satisfying dramatic arc. But it does feel like that's what they're doing. Uh, He continues, and then we get a flash of a pair of cold hands wrapped around a stone heart before a fade to black. All right, all right, simmer down, simmer down. You're just setting yourself up for disappointment and tears. I mean, we all did this last year, Matt. Uh... If we see a Lady Stoneheart that's not a Sansa Stoneheart, all well and good, but I am not going to set my expectations for that this year. Patience B says, You guys joke about Targaryens supposedly being fireproof, but isn't only special rare Targaryens? The Dragon Riders? Isn't that why Viserys, her brother, was killed by the gold and she said that he was no dragon? Am I making sense? They have given us many scenes showing that Danny can't be burnt, but no one else. So, I don't know how else I can explain this fireproof targaryens are kind of sort of a thing in the show and martin says they're absolutely not a thing in the books that danny's fire resistance quote unquote and the funeral pyre was a one-time blood magic ritual thing so how do you reconcile these two concepts i mean even in the show it could be argued that it's just confined to danny because her brother is a full-blooded Targaryen, and he dies. There's a lot of stuff in the books that says Targaryens are resistant to fire um, and to disease, and that their dicks are all three feet long, and their tits are all triple G cup, and that's a lot of things that Targaryens love to say about themselves. But also in the books, there's a lot of Targaryens trying to gargle wildfire and bursting into flames, and a lot of Targaryens dying of the plague, and I've yet to seen one trip on their cocks, so I'm thinking from a book perspective, they're kind of full of shit. They're arrogant, and they're elitist, and they conquered the whole continent of Westeros, so they think they're the biggest and baddest people on the the planet, and that gives them license to weave all these myths about themselves. From a show perspective, I don't know. I don't think it's a general Targaryen trait, because as you've said, Viserys sure wasn't fireproof, and nobody's ever disputed that he's a real full-blooded Targaryen. We all suspect Jon's a Targaryen, right? And he burnt his hand on a lantern. I... And a lot of people suspect that John's going to be a dragon rider. So you can't even say, well, it's only the true dragon rider kind of thing. I I don't know. Um, I, I think I kind of trust in in George Martin what he says about that being a one-time deal. But there's not enough evidence to say either way on the TV show. Because you could also say that this fire resistance was just a way to explain kind of subtle things about what's going to happen to Danny without having to talk about a whole bunch of blood magic and ritual and all that kind of stuff. You know, it it works on multiple levels and and multiple levels of viewers, observational skills and interest in, in the material. So again, jury's still out on the, on all those theories. Trey C mentions, you talk a lot about how there might not be an iron throne by the end of things, but a more representative 
government. At first, I didn't think this is likely, but after reading The World of Ice and Fire, I now somewhat agree with you. While I do not think we'll see a Westerosi democracy, I do think we will maybe see a return to the government model in line with the Valerian freehold. Danny's focus on freedom is in line with traditional Valerian values. So, with Tyrion on her side, we may see her embracing her ancient cultural heritage once more. Just a thought. All right, so here's what the Wiki of Ice and Fire has to say about the Valerian Freehold. The Freehold of Valeria, at the zenith of its power, was neither a kingdom nor an empire, or at least it had neither a king nor an emperor. Instead, all freeholders or freeborn landowners had a say in its governance. In practice, however, the Freehold was ruled by the Lord's Freeholder, powerful noble families. There were 40 families of great wealth, high birth, and strong sorceress ability. Those families which controlled and rode dragons in battle, who came to dominate, were known as dragon lords. So, this to me sounds like a mashup of straight-up feudalism and the Roman Republic right around the time of its collapse, which was corrupt as all hell. And the freehold employed widespread slavery, which is anathema to, to Danny. I'm not sure if I'd be happy with Danny or whomever setting up a system where the landed gentry have a say in the government. It still seems like a very top-down, screw-the-little-guy kind of deal. But I'm also probably being naive asking for a Westerosi-style parliamentary form of government. They continue, One last super tinfoil thought. Has anyone considered grayscale may not have been intended for people who were, uh, and we are just its vectors? If it's Garen's curse, it could stand to reason the real target was Valerian dragons. What's well, interesting, but I'm struggling to think of one example of a dragon coming down with grayscale, and grayscale has, of course, been seen in Westeros. So, you know, if I put on my science hat, I think that a dragon's physiology seems completely alien to humans. They have freaky-deaky magma ooze for blood, after all. It's hard to believe that a virus that infects humans could also infect a dragon and vice versa. There's also a theory running around that the maesters had something to do with the demise of the dragon. So maybe it was an engineered plague of sorts. And again, this is a song of ice and fire. It has its own rules as far as genetics, where black hair always beats blonde hair. And a lot of it's got magic and it's got season winters that can last anywhere from a few years to generations. So your science hat doesn't tell you a lot in this world. Um, but I just see very little evidence that Grayscale is a, is a, a dragon plague uh, in the books or the series. Isaac R. says, Given the Double D's decision to fast-forward the Tyrion and Jorah's unification with Daenerys, do you think Martin has given them plot points for them to work with, or will they simply stall so as not to mess things up? I could definitely see Daenerys just throwing them in the dungeon until she makes up her mind about what to do with them, Maybe Jorah will be fighting Dario in the pits, and Tyrion will be watching them from afar when Drogon swoops in to take Daenerys for a little joyride. I predict that Tyrion's only contribution to the show's plot for this season will be a shot of his jaw dropping at the sight of Drogon's dramatic entrance and exit. Which, by the way, do you think will be the finale of the season? Okay, the Double Ds, Dan and David, have said that they've met with George, and they understand where the show is going, and the broad strokes of how they'll get there, and George has confirmed that as well. George has also said that he's determined to get the Winds of Winter out before next spring's finale, so we'll see. Having said that, I wouldn't be surprised if 75 to 80% of the Winds of Winter is already done. Uh, I mean, there's already like 20, 10 to 20% of the final book that's out in the form of preview chapters, things he's read at conventions, and other stuff. It's kind of similar to where we were at with Dance before it was released, where we had 15 chapters out of 60-some that were already released. So I don't think they're really flying all that blind when it comes to this season. I fully expect them to have all of these manuscripts that they can read and glean plot details from. And then a lot of kind of bullet points about like, this is how we get from this scene to that scene. And then a comprehensive probably treatment of how the last book goes and where everything's eventually going. So I don't think they're flying all that blind when it comes to this season I think they're actually going to be pretty fine next season. It's the season after that, the the finale of the series, if that's what we end up getting, a seven-season finale rather than an eight-season show. It's the season after that that I'm most worried about because it's likely that Martin will have just begun writing. And, you know, all bets are off. If George at the end thinks he's got a better idea than what eventually happened on the show, I think he'll use it. 
I don't think he'll feel like uh, he's got to be a slave to how he thought it was going to originally go down. However, having saying that, he's surely got to have some kind of brilliant idea for all this to be finished that he's he's working towards. And why would he so casually dismiss something he's been working on for 20 plus years? I don't know. It's this is the key kind of like dilemma that we are in as fans of the book and the television show. You know, we're, we're faced a reality where the final two seasons might be really different. And, you know, best case scenario is they're different enough uh, to be enjoyable and to ask different questions and to get different things out, but they ultimately kind of resolve the same way and they both feel satisfying. Worst case, the show is going to spoil enough in the book to kind of rob it of any value and ultimately be unsatisfying because it doesn't tell the story as well, or perhaps the story just doesn't end as well. And it's kind of going to be a bummer. We'll have to find out. I do think that if I have to make a prediction, I think that John's eyes kind of fluttering open or snapping open or Danny riding off into the skies on Drogon will be the last thing we see this season. And my money would be on her riding off into the skies on Drogon. That would be just a cool, cool, epic image uh, to end to, to end the season on. Uh, he continues, uh, or Isaac continues, this season probably won't do anything to answer this question, but do you think that what do you think the ramifications of Tyrion being in Marine during Daenerys' absence might be? Could he do some sneaking around and figure out who his dar is up to? Might Tyrion and Jorah team up to kick his butt? So this is a great, great point of speculation. One of the frustrations with the books is that Dar- Barristan is way over his head when dealing with the post-Drogon political intrigue in Marine, which has always been kind of annoying to me. I mean, all you can do is really swing a sword, which he does well. His heart's in the right place, you know. Uh, But do you know who can deal with political intrigue and do it well? Fucking Tyrion Lannister. Do you know who can swing a sword? Fucking Jorah Mormont. I actually think that they together can be more interesting and just as badass as old Selmy, which, you know, pains me to say. In fact, I'm actually feeling a bit like an asshole because I feel like we might very well get to see Jorah in that Kraz scene that I played after Barristan died for all the show watchers, and I bet I get a lot of pissy emails from show watchers emailing me about how I spoiled it. And potentially I have that to look forward to, and I'll probably deserve it, because I thought in the back of my mind, man, what if they remix this and they do it? And I'm like, ah, this is such an iconic sell me scene. There's no way they can do it. And I love sell me so much, and I love that scene so much that I had to get it in there. And if they give that to Jorah, uh, I'm going to feel like a real asshole. So we'll see. We'll see. Luke B says, I think the end will mirror the books with Varys killing the current hand of the king. I wonder, though, if it will be Kevin. I think it would be way more impactful to have it be Littlefinger that meets his death. Show Kevin has been both recast and not really shown much. His death in the show would not mean as much. I don't know that he's been recast. Um, I tried to look this up on IMDb, and then I got distracted in some other thing and then I forgot to, to, until I'm recording this right now so shit but I thought it was the same character that we saw in at least season two and I don't think he was be in there before season two they continue with Sans and Littlefinger's plot seemingly remixed I wonder if Littlefinger will step in to try to take Cersei's place at Tommen's side this would fit his character as he's been slowly trying to gain more power, and with the Vale and potentially Winterfell behind him, he's basically Tywin 2.0, as if he were made to be Tommen's hand. Well, I mean, obviously you can't have it both ways, and if I was guessing, I'd rather see Littlefinger die by Varys' hand. I mean, I always liked Varys better than Littlefinger, so that would be pretty cool, personally. On the other hand, why reestablish Kevin as a character at all this season? We didn't need to see him introduce us to Lancel. I mean, we last saw Kevin in season two, same as Lancel, and we saw way more of Lancel. Also, Littlefinger still has a role to play with Sansa, and I'm not sure what, but I feel like she's going to be a key to his downfall. I think after this season, she'll have the motivation to try to bring him down, and that he'll have this giant Sansa-sized blind spot that he won't be keeping his eye on. I mean, I don't know. I say that, and it kind of sounds stupid. It's hard to imagine anyone bringing Littlefinger down. It will probably be something random, like a street rat throwing a rock to his head one day or something, the day his ladder uh, of chaos finally runs out. But 
to the extent that I think Littlefinger is a key figure, which is probably the understatement of the century, a key figure in A Song of Ice and Fire, and he still has stuff to do, I doubt that they kill Littlefinger. And, you know, Martin's Razor would suggest why bring Kevin back at all other than for the show watchers to feel like, ah, we finally got, you know, a chip off the old Tywin block coming back to save King's Landing or put, you know, save the Lannisters, pull their fat out of the fire, and then herp derp, he gets a crossbow bolt in the chest. So I think that's probably more likely. Josh H. said on episode five spoiler cast, I floated the idea that maybe John makes it out unscathed. I was pleasantly surprised that at least one emailer, the next cast, wouldn't riot if that happens. Could it be Sam that gets to stabbing? He certainly didn't make any friends while John was away. I think it far too much has to happen for the For the Watch scene to happen. Sam and Ed are still both at the wall. I don't see them participating, and Ghost didn't seem to be caged up for that matter either. Uh, so if Sam gets stabbed at the wall, first of all, Ed rode up north with John. But if Sam gets stabbed at the wall, then I will be dismayed. I don't know if I'll riot, um, but I'm really interested in what Sorella and Jaken are doing infiltrating the Citadel. And Sam's a key component of that plot. If Sam dies, then I don't see how they get around to that plot, which means there's this huge sequence of clandestine, mysterious events going on at the Citadel that's probably just going to be irrelevant. And I, I don't know. I mean, that was what the prologue and epilogue with Dance of Dragons is all about. So that screams that it's important. So you got to have Sam or somebody go to the Citadel. And if not Sam, who? According to IMDb, Josh continues, which I know is not super reliable, but as they get closer, it may be right. Episode 10 is called Winter. And the dude that played Night's King is supposedly cast, as well as the actor who played Pinjin. If both these are true, how do you think that would affect the storyline at the wall? Holy shit. All right, so here's the thing about IMDb. I just checked, and it now says at the time of me recording this that it's back to TBD, to be determined. Earlier this morning, according to Reddit, the episode was entitled Mother's Mercy. I mean... This is all total bullshit, just like I said last week. So I think it's still too early to draw conclusions. Maybe next week we'll get something legit and something final because, after all, they eventually have to get all this stuff ready for the TV guides and the program directories and whatnot. That said, it wouldn't surprise me to see the White Walkers and the Night's King before the end of the season. I will say this. If Ben Jin Stark shows up in Episode 10, I will take red lipstick and I will write the word dick on my forehead for the live video version of our main podcast. That's how confident I am that he is not going to show up. If Benjamin Stark shows back up, it I don't know what that does to R slash Game of Thrones and R slash A Song of Ice and Fire. Like it's one of the biggest recurring jokes uh that he's gonna be relevant five books after he's introduced. He's nowhere to be found in Dance of Dragons. Again, I feel very confident. I was almost so confident that I said that I was going to eat this giant emperor scorpion that's freeze-dried and sitting on a shelf in a little case behind me. That's the only bug that Jim and I were both too big of a puss to eat on that one lunch with Jim and Aaron uh, Friday thing that we do for, for supporters where we ate all the different bugs. We got to that one, and we both noped out. Uh, but I'm not that fucking confident and I'm not even sure I'm confident enough to say I'll eat that thing if the sun doesn't rise tomorrow because just so you can calibrate your confidence scale of Aaron, that thing is terrifying. I'm kind of gagging just thinking about it. So I'm confident enough to wear the word dick on my forehead, not confident enough to eat a giant scary looking bug. So there you go. Speaking of me being a dick and wrong, let's talk about the tinfoil section. I have exactly three tinfoil theories left, and I'm not really that thrilled about either of them or any of them. One is really fun and funny, but kind of dumb. That's the one you're going to get this week. Two are interesting, but fairly long and dry comparisons of A Song of Ice and Fire to North mythology and the Bible, uh, respectively. I have a few others, but they're also super long and very hard to source quotes from, which is another thing. Like I personally don't like just talking about theories that don't have concrete statements that back them up in the books if it's just people making inferences from people's motivations and you know unconnected plots and patterns and literature and stuff it's it's not as interesting because i don't literally believe george martin took 
chapters 12 through 18 from the book of Revelations and said, I'm going to match up verse for verse, and I'm going to use that as a template to write the books. I just don't. So uh, I know I've also gotten several feedbacks the last week from people to say they haven't enjoyed the last few tinfoil theories as much as the first 15 or 16 or whatever. And I agree with you. I mean, I said at the beginning of the season, we're really starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel as far as tinfoil goes. I don't know what to do about that. I'm kind of excited about next season because supposedly we'll have the winds of winter to go crazy on. But what if it's not out? Or what if it comes out the week before the series starts in season six? I doubt there's going to be a lot of really good tinfoil theories or analysis for the first few weeks as everyone's going to be reading and rereading the books. I mean, I don't know what to do long term. Uh, but for this week, I took an informal poll on the forums at forums.baldmove.com and I asked people, do you want to hear about casting news or kind of funny, kind of pointless tinfoil? And people said, we want the tinfoil. So tinfoil you shall have. I think we'll get to the casting news maybe the final week or the wrap-up week. But now, without further ado, I bring you The Merlin King, which was first brought to light by user Nightflyer all the way back in May of 2008 on the famed Forum of Ice and Fire. So this theory posits that Varys is not a human, but rather a mermaid, or in his case, a merman, or as they're called collectively as a species, merlings. Merlings are well-established in Westerosi lore, there's plenty of legends and myths involving them, especially among the seafaring people, such as Ironborn. The Merlin King is a god that is one of the many worshipped by the faceless men. Merlings are assumed to be mere mythological creatures by all the intelligent and educated people of Westeros, just like Krakens, Grumpkins, Snarks, Mammoths, Giants, White Walkers, and Children of the Forest. Entirely mythological beasts. But what if there are Merlings? And they walk among us. Let me ask you, what do we know about Varys? He's bald, he's a eunuch, he's good with disguises, he has a smile frequently described as slimy, he's fat, but he moves with a fluidity and grace that belies his size, he habitually wears long flowing robes that obscure his lower half. If Varys is a merling, this all makes a lot of sense. Of course his smile would be slimy. He's not a eunuch, it's just his merling anatomy makes it seem like he is, and he encourages people's mistaken impression with some trumped-up, pulpy story about getting a stone and pillars cut off and cast into fires by a warlock. That also eliminates questions about his lack of human relationships. Of course Ferris doesn't enjoy the company of men or women. He's a merling, you sicko. He wants to fuck us just about as much as we want to fuck a carp. Ferris's bulk could hide the fact that there is something very fishy about his lower half and merlings of myth are said to be possessed of superhuman strength and endurance which would explain why he's light on his feet and i say feet of course ironically we've never seen his feet the fact that he's good at disguises and wears flowing robes that would hide any unsightly scales or fins is just all gravy now i can hear you say already but aaron this is horseshit you're just making stuff up and i'd respond i'm not making anything up it's actually Nightflyer making shit up. I'm just repeating what he said. And also, our stocks of tinfoil are dwindling. And also, shut up. But there is a lot of evidence for you naysayers beyond just his mere appearance. Ask yourself, where does Varys sleep? The books tell us that he sleeps on a solid slab of granite. Varys closed the door and barred it. I am plagued with backaches, my lord, and prefer to sleep upon a hard surface. I would have taken you for a feather bed, man. I'm full of surprises. Full of surprises indeed, Varys. In fact, we later find out that this bed is just a ruse. When the candle burned out, Tyrion disentangled himself and lit another. Then he made a round of the walls, tapping on each in turn, searching for the hidden door. Shay sat with her legs drawn up and her arms wrapped around them, watching him. Finally, she said, they're under the bed, the secret steps. He looked at her incredulous. The bed? The bed is solid stone. It weighs half a ton. There's a place where Varys pushes, and it floats right up. I asked him how, and he said it was magic. Magic my ass. Varys Merling physiology makes conventional beds infeasible, so he converts his into a fancy trapdoor to a super-secret underground tunnel system throughout the Red Keep and King's Landing. Well, where does Varys sleep? 
you might be surprised that the book supplies with an answer. If you recall in Game of Thrones, there's a POV chapter with Arya where she's creeping around in the tunnels beneath King's Landing and she overhears Varys and Illyrio plotting. Let me read you a snippet of this. The man with a torch pushed at something. Arya heard a deep rumbling. A huge slab of rock, red in the torchlight, slid down out of the ceiling with a resounding crash that almost made her cry out. Where the entry to the well had been was nothing but stone, solid and unbroken. So Arya is hanging out in these dank tunnels with the sounds of dripping water everywhere, and Varys and Illyrio pop out of a well, huh? Well, that's super convenient. Arya later follows these tunnels to their exit, which is a sewer that terminates into a river that then flows out into the ocean. Seems like a pretty shitty place to get in and out of if you're a human, but if you're Merling, it's a relaxing swim. By the way, Varys' ally, Illyrio, also described as a big fat man who wears robes that cover his lower half. Do we have a Merling conspiracy at work? If so, who could be other co-conspirators? What about our fan favorite, Lord Manderley of White Harbor? Oh, don't worry about him. He's fully human. A fully human, hugely fat man with a taste for human flesh. Who has a Merling for his family sigil. Yeah, nothing to see there. Let's just move along. Back to Varys, you'll recall his verbal sparring with Tyrion in The Clash of Kings, uh, also featured on a television series in Season 2. Remember this little exchange? When they were done, Varys came gliding into the hall wearing the flowing lavender robes that matched his smell. Oh, sweetly done, my good lord. Then why do I have this bitter taste in my mouth? He pressed his fingers into his temples. I told them to throw Aladim into the sea. I am sorely tempted to do the same with you. You might be disappointed by the result, Varys replied. The storms come and go, the waves crash overhead, the big fish eat the little fish, and I keep on paddling. Sure, I bet Tyrion would be real disappointed when Varys transforms into a human jet ski as soon as he touches water and motors off to summon his merling army to destroy King's Landing. Let's talk about Varys' main antagonist, Littlefinger. He claims to have some sort of hold over Varys. Littlefinger smiled. Leave Lord Varys to me, sweet lady. If you will permit me a small obscenity, and where better for it than here, I hold a man's balls in the palm of my hand. He cupped his finger, smiling. Or would, if he were a man, or had any balls, you say, if the pie is opened, the birds begin to sing, and Varus would not like that. What could Littlefinger possibly have over Varus? Perhaps his secret identity as a Merling? After all, Littlefinger's vessel is called the Merling King. A subtle tweak at his rival? Or is he just flaunting his power over Varys the Merling? Ask yourself, what is Varys endgame, though? It doesn't really make sense in the book. He's, you know, doing some things to subvert King's Landing, and he's working with Ilya, Illyrio to put a Targaryen back on the throne. It's all very nebulous, and, and, and we're not really sure exactly where it's going. But... It's indisputable that he and Illyrio have supplied Danny with dragon eggs, putting themselves firmly on the side of fire against the coming winter. This is the song of ice and fire. What do you get when you combine ice and fire? You get water. Imagine an army of dragons bringing about an endless summer that melts the ice wall and all the frozen wastelands of the lands of always winter, simultaneously flooding most of Westeros, providing Lebenstrom for the Merling race, elbow room for their race's expansion, and a bounty of dead humans for the Merlings to feast upon. Once the sea level rises, very few places will be habitable by men. Only a few high places, such as the Erie, where Littlefinger now rules. Littlefinger, the Merling King. So there you have it. If you've not been educated or stimulated, I hope at least you were entertained. We'll be back next week for another... Action Pack Spoiler Edition, where we'll consider a bunch of new listener emails, and I'll try to cobble together some tinfoil. Uh, but in the meantime, join us Sunday night for our Instant Take podcast, where we cover episode 508, Hard Home, and of course, on Tuesday, when we release the full schedule, if you or the full podcast, rather. If you've enjoyed the spoiler section, please take, a time, take some time to go to club.baldmove.com and see how you can support us, or if you shop on Amazon, uh, visit amazon.baldmove.com for all your Amazon shopping needs. 
because the God's honest truth is you wouldn't have three Game of Thrones podcasts if Jim and I weren't able to do this stuff on a full-time basis. And we're blessed by fan support that allows us to do that and cover your favorite shows and cover them to the depth and extent that you've grown accustomed to and enjoy. So please do your part uh, to help us help you by supporting us at club.baldmove.com or using amazon.baldmove.com. Thanks to everyone listening. Thanks to everyone writing in for giving us fuel for the fire, and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend.